At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome everyone to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. Christmas is over for those of you that celebrated, and so no doubt you'll have a year's reprieve from some of the great culinary controversies of our time, such as whether cranberry sauce should be ribbed for your pleasure as a jiggling cylindrical tribute to the canned goods, who the vocal minority is that saddle us with a gross hateful bird at the holidays, no one likes turkey, what the appropriate term for piece of Toblerone is, I propose a wedge, and finally, how violent one should get with a chocolate orange. I suggest very. At any rate, I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, working off various holiday food-induced comas. And with me, as always, is my dear co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. Did you did you have some good food over the holiday? I did. I had it almost all to myself due to the, the giant blizzard that hit us here. Yes, many all, storms. All plans were canceled, and it was a giant feast for three. <laughs> yes. I was reminded once again that travel is a curse inflicted on sinful humanity for its transgressions, and yet nonetheless, I'm always in a position of doing it. I don't know why. We all have a cross to bear, Mark. The universe isn't fair. Do you know how hard it is to travel the cross? They do not fit in any trunk. Thank God you have a sunroof. <laughs> it's true. So this is a board gaming podcast. We're going to talk about some board games. First, we're going to uh, talk about the Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospector of intro segment, the game we reviewed last year. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our topic of the week is... You ran out of time. Real-time games. Oh, damn it. So, Walker, what did we review last year? One year ago exactly, I remember because it was a Christmas-themed game, is Dominant Species Marine. Christmas themed? Starfish? Yes. You put the starfish on top of the tree. Uh, that's all I got. You got it. Okay. Good. <laughs> so this is a design published posthumously of the great Chad Jensen. Uh, this is a review copy we got from GMT Games. And 
I kind of preferred it to the normal dominant species, but it doesn't really saying much. And as a consequence, I haven't really turned back to it. As, as we've commented a number of times before, you know, if you're going to be a two to three hour worker placement game, the bar is pretty high. There's a fair amount of stiff competition in that field. And I just found Dominant Species Marine just a little too random. The events could just swing things wildly out of control and or the action cards. And constantly reparsing who dominates what, where, and when wasn't wasn't my idea of a hot time. Although I did prefer it to the normal Dominant Species, so there's that. True, and they, you know, they stick, you know, to real worker placement where, you know, the placement actually mattered and... At least that part was the same. It wasn't just action selection. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot to like in Dominant Species Marine. And as I say, if you if you enjoy Dominant Species, I find it shockingly underplayed. Because there are lots of people who love Dominant Species and who haven't tried Dominant Species Marine, and I don't know why. It's an, in, it's an interesting evolution of the system. After all, what more natural thing could there be than for a wargame publisher to publish a slight evolution on the system? That's kind of what wargames do. It's like, we'll change the theater and we'll tweak a couple of the rules to represent that theater. And plus they did the same as every, you know, you have the animal game. And then you have the expansion or next game that's about water. Yeah. Right? It's, it's what it's what's done. Or space. Or space. You yes. can do the first one in space and then the second one under, underwater. This is the XCOM mold. Gotcha. Which a number of games have done. Uh, you know, the crew did that more recently. And you're right. First you do it on land. Then you do it in this. this you, is know, the, you do Zuloretto. Then Zuloretto, yep. And then you do Arc Nova. Arc Nova. Yep. And then in the water. It's it's just the pattern. It's, the, it's, it's what you do. It's what's done. No white after Labor Day. First space or land animals, then undersea. It's just, like, it's just like wingspan, right? You have the birds that fly in the air, and then you have the birds that fly in the water. It's the new expansion. It just came. Out. Are there birds that fly in the water? No. Okay. It's all very confusing. So I haven't played Dominant Species Marine. I haven't thought about Dominant Species Marine. Again, It was I, I found it interesting to, to explore its changes, but it, it just ran afoul of more or less the same problems I had with Dominant Species Marine. But the flow, as one would expect from a water-themed game, vastly superior because it adopts the nearly ubiquitous now worker placement mold of on your turn, place a worker or take all your workers back. It's true. And that is the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now onto the games we played this week. Mark, what did you get to play this week? I finally got to play Oak. Walker very kindly showed me Oak. I'd been curious about it. There's been a number of games he's been talking about in the past few weeks of the Euro variety that I've been keen to try. And Oak is designed by Vim Goosen's, uh, published by Game Brewer. It's a very pretty game, either in the retail or the Kickstarter version. And honestly, I want to start with one of the least relevant or important elements of a medium-heavy Euro game. The toy factor is very high, because you have these druids that you can bedazzle with various plastic accessories. This one dons a cool cloak and becomes the recluse. This one gets some birds on on it, his staff, and now he becomes the Talon Master. It's awesome. And so while you're waiting for your turn, not that downtime is a huge deal, you can sit there and you can play with your little, you can play dress up with your little druids. And it is actually relevant to the gameplay. One of my concerns was, especially when I was seeing the toys, was how relevant isn't going to be? And I looked at the special powers of the various druids, and I'm like, eh, is this really going to matter? Well, it kind of doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot from the specific powers that the druids get, but it does matter a whole heck of a lot because there are certain things that only advanced druids can get. So there's there are these gate-kept uh, gate spaces that only bedazzled druids get to do. So I was relatively pleased with that. If there's going to be a toy factor, I'd like it to be relevant to the gameplay. <laughs> anyway. And there's also limited spaces where they can rest, right? So you sort of have to build up for that as well. Exactly. It actually reminded me a little bit, 
in terms of its overall managerial style of workers, of anachrony. Because in anachrony, you've got all these workers, some of them with different specializations, and some of them can go to certain spaces by virtue of the fact that they're riding giant stompy mechs. Similarly, in Oak, you have all these workers, some of which with specializations, that can only go to certain spaces by virtue of the cards you have. So you're managing your supply of cards. It's not really a deck builder. You gain new ones every time, but they're never shuffled, and we're talking relatively small number. And you can only send them to certain board spaces by playing a card in conjunction with them going there. And so that's an extra little bit of management and deciding to get extra cards or upgrade your druids. That part I found very interesting on top of having to manage where your druids are going to sleep. I also really like the fact that there's always like three actions on the same card you want to do. And you know you can only do one of them. And and there is a lot of, you know, figuring out which cards to use and when. The pressure is considerable. And sometimes this pressure is alleviated by the fact that somebody else gets their first cough, Huey cough, every round. I don't know how he did it. Given that he was the start player only a third of the time, how could he beat me to where I wanted to be every round? Anyway, setting that aside, I will be the bigger person and move on. But then there was the Red Druid. He was a jerk, too. <laughs> You're playing with three players as a Red Druid that also miraculously is exact. And the cost of going somewhere where someone else is is real, real high. And that's pleasant. And so the, the the tempo pressures are considerable. It's not the kind of player interaction where, you know, you go and you take that thing because you know it's specifically what your opponent's going to take. But nonetheless, it has that, that, that Agricola feel of every placement being super critical and you have to very, very carefully triage your placements. There's a whole bunch of vaguely toyetic sub-elements that you get to manage. As I've already talked about upgrading your druids. There's getting new places for your druids. There's getting monsters. There's getting artifacts. They all work slightly differently, but the cognitive load is very manageable. It doesn't feel like a sprawling mess like it could have had it been slightly differently designed. All the little different little subsystems... They don't come together in a, in a particularly cohesive way, but not, neither does it feel like some sort of disconnected point salad bit of nonsense, despite the fact that they're sub- relatively involved. So compare that with something like Paleo-Americans, for example. This is a game we've both been kind of beating up on over the course of the past few weeks. Paleo-Americans feels like a whole bunch of disconnected things that are slapped together in the same game. Whereas Oak, to me at least, feels more cohesive in terms of the way the subsystems are managed. And I think part of that is that it all comes together with this card play and, and druid management, I'm not 100% sure because basically, you know, your monsters typically manage how you use your druids for the most part. The artifacts still need druids to work. You're upgrading your druids and the cards interact with your druids, etc., etc. I was very pleased with Oak. I thought it was probably the best medium-heavy Euro I've played all year, and I'm very much looking forward to playing it again. Yeah, I'm very interested to because there's different combinations you're going to play every time because there's three main potions that come out every game. And I'm very can, curious to see how and that comes. And they come from, you know, these fairly large stacks. And some of those potions come with their own sort of game components. Like the fact that we got extra artifacts, that was because of one of the potions. There's a, a sixth druid that, is it six? Sixth druid that you can get if you have a particular potion. All of these different things. Yeah, and I'm glad actually just commenting more broadly about medium-heavy Euro games and such, I'm glad that the sort of recipe fulfillment of the potions is relatively... Well, it was relatively minor in the game we played. I could see it could be more substantial in other games. Early in the game, there was a there was a bit of a pressure to go out and brew some of the potions because the first time you brewed it, it was very consequential. Near the mid-game or so, there was a tipping point where we're like, eh, not a huge deal. And so the pressure was substantially alleviated there. 
I remember back when order fulfillment was cool and novel and was a way to give some structure to resource collection. And now it's just everywhere. Now it's, it's kind of the new tableau building of Euro design. It's this sort of generic thing to give some sort of point structure to these resources that you're generating. And sometimes it can be done really well and sometimes it can be done really badly. And for the most part, I'm, I'm kind of tired of it as a primary driver. Even in the context of really, really well done games like, say, Whale Riders. You know, I'm perfectly happy to play Whale Riders, but again, you know, it's like eh, more recipe fulfillment. And I was glad to see how it shook out in the context of Oak. So suffice to say, given that there's a whole bunch of variety in each of how these subsystems work, I could, I could see that changing the overall economy of the game and the way the different subsystems interact. I'm very keen to see new setups. And that's Oak by Game Brewer. I went back to Weather Machine by Vidal Lacerda put out by Eagle Griffin Games, and now that we're, we, we've tweaked a couple of the rules the way they're supposed to be played, it, it didn't change too, too much, but I am enjoying it. I really wish that all of these subsystems that are in these uh, Vital sort of games would manifest better in this particular game, like sort of everything linked together. I'm doing this because it does this, because I want it to do this. It, it, this still seems very disjointed. It's like, you know, I'm going here because I need this color cog, and then I'm going to use this cog because I want this to happen, but not in any thematic way that mm. I felt, right? But still, it, it I played a second time. I enjoyed working the gears. I think I'm going to try it a few more times. Lots of different things you can do. Lots of subsystems, you're getting certificates and you're trying to fill out these lines. Everyone gets their own little sort of stack of mini objectives that you can use in different ways. What's the playing time like? That's it, We've got it down pretty good. Setup is a little arduous. There's lots of tiles to set up and chemicals to put out and uh, weather machine cards to sort. But other than that, it's, it's not too, too bad. So two to three hours is two to three a hours. standard affair? Standard, yeah. 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 And I think you've commented on this before. This is not going to change anyone's mind about Vital Lacerda. No. Okay. Very much standard fare from what I've played. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th th when I was commenting on, there were a number of euros that you'd been talking about over the past couple of months that I was keen to try. This, this, this wasn't one of them. No. Just, just to be clear. I know you knew that, but I just <laughs> wanted to emphasize. <laughs> Got to try Time of Empires. Time of Empires is a game by Pearl Games designed by David Simia and Pierre Vouy. And I was very keen to, to try it, not on the strength of pedigree or of publisher of designer, but purely because this was a, a riff on civilization games played real time. And this perhaps bears a passing influence on what we'll be discussing later on in the topic. And how it leverages the real-time element is you have these two sign timers that ideally are supposed to be about 30 seconds each, and the moment you plop them down somewhere, you get to do the associated action, and you cannot move that sign timer anywhere until the 30 seconds has run out. And first of all, I want to comment on how it deals with the overall civ trappings, because all the standard suspects are there. You build wonders, you recruit leaders, you build buildings, you engage in some military, blah, 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 blah. We all know the recipe a million times before. Sometimes it's done really well, sometimes it's done really poorly, but there's a series of tick boxes that you have to check off when you're dealing, a, and this is very much in the Sid Meier mold. This is not a sort of Tresham-esque, there's no training involved, there's no grand sweep of civilization that you'd see there. It's all very much the pointillistic. You gotta have of, your eras, right? You gotta Era have the eras, yeah, right, absolutely. Right, yeah. The set eras. You go straight from cave painting right to the Renaissance, yeah, that's how it works. But it didn't really bother me thematically to the same extent that a lot of these other Meyer-esque civilization games did because 
Unlike, say, I'll even pick on a game that I really like. I really like Through the Ages, A Story of Civilization. But you can be in a situation where you're still mining bronze well into the space age. You're probably not going to be doing really well with it, but it's a possibility. And that's just how buildings work. You have a class of building. You might play a tech that gives you a better class of building. And then from then on, you're probably building the better building. I really liked the flow of buildings in Time of Empires. The way that it works is, yes, you can build four different types of buildings and in classic scythe fashion or Terra Mystica or what have you. As you build more buildings, you uncover more spots and your production goes up. But the way that it works is, first you get a tech. You start with some, but you can draw more as an action. Then you play the tech. This will cost some amount of science. And then that will allow you to build a type of building once. And then the card goes away. So if you discover, say, opera houses, you're not going to be building dozens of opera houses over the course of the game. You'll build one at most, and then it's gone. And so that does two things. Number one, it encourages you to be dynamic and encourages you to stay with the current realm of, of technology in a very, very organic fashion. Because sometimes, again, picking on through the ages, you'll spend two, three, four, five turns in a row just managing your board in terms of your actions. You're not paying attention to what there is to draft. And sometimes that's even the good move to take. But as a consequence, you're just managing the economy you've already got rather than going with the flow of history. You don't have that in Time of Empires. In Time of Empires, you're always dealing with new cards, new influx of technologies. You're constantly dealing with new stuff. And Number two, that makes it more diverting because you're seeing new stuff all the time and responding to new changes. That part I really appreciated. Well, I feel like they just took everything that a real-time game should be and just, you know, chopped it like perfect. And that's why they did, you do some keep building opera houses because then you'd have to remember what opera houses do. Sure. Now you get something else and it does what it does and it's gone. You don't need to that's remember what it does. And everything is like that in this game. Everything's nice and simple because it's real time. There's nothing you have to remember. You have your goals. You can go for them. You get your instant effects with things that sort of make sense because they're, you know, the next era and you sort of upgraded things. And then there's this land grab portion of the game, which in two players wasn't too bad, but I'm not sure how it's going to flush out with multiple players. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I did play it with four. And I was very pleased. The only problem that I have conceptually, because again, we had this discussion after playing two players. We were curious how it would work with more players. I, I have concerns about table presence in just a moment. But with four players, my only major concern is that the game could break if people started to collude. Because the way military conquest works, you jockey for territory on a very, very simple mutual destruction combat mechanism, a la Antica. My one clan kills your one clan, etc. But if at the end of an age, so not in the middle of the real-time portion, but if at the very end when the timer goes off, if I have forces present next to your buildings, those buildings get destroyed. Nothing bad happens to you at all. Zero negative effects whatsoever. You're, you keep the buildings off your board, so you always benefit from the production. You still benefit from the one shot you do. You lose no point, no points. But for the rest of the game, I get three points per era per building that I've destroyed. And this can be really, really, really big. If two players decided to, I'm not saying that any reasonable table would come to this conclusion. But some people might realize, like, well, why don't I build these two buildings and leave? And why don't you build two buildings and leave? And I'll go there and you'll go there. And now we both get six points. And uh, there we go. Off to the races. There's no in-game incentive not to do that. Oh, I was thinking, I, I thought you were going in some totally different direction. If two people just said, well, why don't we just, like, totally invade this other person? And we'll just divide up their buildings and we'll have double the forces and they can't <laughs> stop us. That may be a problem, too. But of course... <laughs> 
It's difficult, though, to invade somebody without leaving yourself vulnerable. One of the aspects that actually is slightly evocative of Tresham's civilization is you're going to be managing your population limits probably by the second age. You start at the start of the game, you've got more tokens than you could ever possibly use. I'll never run out. And then you run out hard. Running out is almost inevitable. And managing that is another challenge. I'm I'm not concerned about this collusive opportunity. You know, when when playing four players, sometimes the concern is that A and B fight, C wins. Here, I think if it's the case that A and B fight, C and D lose. If they if you're not aggressive, if you're not engaged in grabbing territory, suffering some losses maybe, but also inflicting some losses, you're gonna get left behind. I think that's a better problem to have. It seems to shake out reasonably well. I'm going to be paying more attention to it going forward. I am keen to play more of Time of Empires. I think it's a relatively novel take, structurally speaking, on Civ games. I don't know how long its legs are going to be because there's not quite as many leaders as I might like. There's lots of wonders to be had. But the the leader variety isn't huge, and the tech variety, I'm not sure how much it is. It could be sort of superficially broad, but in practice relatively shallow. The only other concern that I have as far as playing Time of Empires, especially with many players, is just, we've talked about this a number of times before, proximity of game elements. You score leaders at the end of each age. You score wonders at the end of each age. If that board isn't close to you, even if you can reach it, you're probably going to forget. So there's this card you know, three feet away from you on the table that says in small text, here's what you get points for. You might just give up, in the sp- especially in the context of a real-time game. Yeah, that okay. Especially real-time. Yeah. Well, the thing for combat, did you see this at all? The thing that I'm worried about is not the long-term ramifications. It's like the instant while people are moving. If if more than one person is trying to move into the same territories at the same time with four people, because we know that space was very limited, especially even in our game that we we're fighting almost, almost immediately. And... With four, that center is going to get very busy. And I'm just wondering, you know, people all take the move action at the same time if that's going to cause any confusion. In my in my two games, that has never happened. I share with you the conceptual concern, and I'm paying attention to it. But so far, it's never manifest. The only part that feels vaguely unsatisfying is the way the game works is if the gong hits, namely the end of the age is triggered, and you've placed your action marker, you then get to finish the action. You're just not allowed to start any new ones. So far in every game I've played, at least in one era, someone has triggered the move action just before the gong hits, and then they just get to look at the board and decide where they're going to be and how the board is going to be at the very end of the game. It's okay. It's not a huge problem. But as far as military conflict goes, it's probably one of the more spiky elements of the design. But I have to say, so far, I've been having a blast with Time of Empires. It's very rules accessible as far as these things go, certainly by the standards of civilization games. So you don't have a whole lot of rules questions while the the game is going. And uh, my biggest complaint, honestly, so far about Time of Empires, other than all the conceptual concerns that I have that are that are merely hypothetical, is that the app, which is kind of necessary because it runs the soundtrack, which lets you know when scholars are coming because you can hear the babies crying because scholars are... Or big, 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 big babies. Huge big babies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Baby, baby, poo faces. The scholars come and they come whining about eh, the mind-body problem and eh, the laughter curve doesn't make any sense. And, eh. Anyway. It's, I was in academia, I can attest, it, it checks out 100%, is that there's no back button. There's no undo button. All apps need back and undo buttons. I'm sick to death of these board game apps, whether they keep score or not or whatever. Let me go back, please. I know we're spending a lot of time on this because I think we very much both enjoyed it. But I do want to touch on the on the civilization, not civilization, the 
population again. Sure. Because you talked about it briefly, but I like how they made it like big chunky pieces of plastic. Very satisfying. Because in a real time game, you know, grabbing those and manipulating those. Yeah. Much easier. But what these are is like, it's a pool of these giant uh, hexagons, but you're using them for everything. So you need to sort of figure out, you know, sometimes you kill troops on purpose so you can get them back. So you can put out scholars or bid on leaders. It's this instant cool flowing dynamic of keeping your board presence low or high at particular times i really enjoyed that part of the game yeah and again that that is vaguely evocative of what you might do in a in a tresham civilization oh my population's too high let's start a pointless war <laughs> it's it's grim and it's cynical but it's i hate to say not entirely a historical so there you go yeah, no, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm eager to show it to more people. Some people don't like real-time games. We'll be talking about that later. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about some of the specific elements of real-time designs later and the way that Time of Empires does it well or other games don't later. But uh, Time of Empires has definitely been foremost in my mind recently, If as evidenced by the fact that after playing it with you, I immediately wanted to go play it again. And that was Time of Empires by David Simien and Pierre Voy. I got to play random ancient occupation of the random compass point. <laughs> well done, sir. Wayfarers of the South Tigris, designed by Jay McDonald, Shem Phillips, and published by Garp Hill Games. Lots of iconography in this market, but it does do something. We, we've shied away. We hit hard off of, of their first endeavor. Well, the first endeavor that we played, Architects of the Something Kingdom. Yes, something, something. One of the four kingdoms. I don't know which This one does something where the, the workers that you have are, are everyone's workers, sort of. You have different colors, and you'll put them on the, on the cards that are out on the board that, that uh, activates the action that's above them. And then whenever someone takes a particular action, which could be anywhere that lets them pick a card or, or get that card, those workers come back to them. So it's this flow of workers. And that part was interesting. There was quite so, a few. So not entirely unlike Keyflower. Yes. But slightly more dynamic yes, rather yeah, than at the end of the round, all the tiles go out. It's just, it's a little bit more of a, mm, someone pulling the trigger. And, that's and, right. Cool. Just so. That it, sounds interesting. Yeah, it was I'd try that. Yeah. And, and so you're building out left and right you're you know making a c to the right and no not and left and right east and west east and sorry east and west water this way land this way and you're putting up stars and sky as well below and it seemed all interesting there's all this you know going for victory points that are seen in the stars and and all sorts of components moving around. It, it, <laughs> Sounds it, like a hero it, to me. It went very long and there was a lot of iconography. Oh really? How long was it? I, I didn't time it. I would have to look back. But it seemed long. In excess of two hours? Probably. Wow. Lots of little tokens, but you do get to upgrade things. Seemed, I, w- I wouldn't mind playing it again. I wouldn't ever, I don't think I'd ever choose to play it. Okay. But, uh, but if it was thrown on the table, I would probably give it another whirl because it does definitely changes up how the decks come out and how things happen. It seemed interesting. Luckily, I locked on to, it's like, oh, I've got this card. If I, there was these three, I don't want to say arbitrary, but there was like three pools of stuff that you could build on the right-hand side that like gave you bonuses to actions and something early on said, well, I'll get two points for everything in this particular pool. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to, like I normally do, right. focus everything in there. And, you know, I didn't come, I didn't, I don't think I came very much last, but I enjoyed it. I wish I could give you a, a better grasp of how this game goes, but 
it was well. A lot of these games are pretty interchangeable. So. Yes, just so. <laughs> I'm the, the the hook of how the workers flow around. Yes, yeah, that, that was worth it. Worth giving it a whirl. Good. good. And there's other ways to do actions. You don't always need workers, and so you can sort of a lot of the game. I didn't use any workers. I was just doing the other actions, and then the worker actions are a little bit more powerful. And there are like three different colors of workers. There was this main center thing in the board that you sort of sort of went up your choice of how you moved and unlocked stuff, i.e. the more powerful workers, the green workers, you know, they came back to your board. Wait, wait, the most powerful way. workers are the green workers? Yes, I believe so. Just like Keyflower? Just like Keyflower. <laughs> Wild. And then that's, the, this path that you're going up leads to end game scoring conditions too, and whoever gets to that checkbox first, then that will trigger the end of the game. Everyone else gets one more turn. And that is the end of the Wayfarers of South Tigris. I get to play another game of Persuasion. Persuasion is designed by Zoe Allred, and it is an unpublished design. I received a review copy from Zoe, and it is kind of sort of evocative of courting in the Victorian era as understood by Jane Austen. Persuasion is utterly fascinating. I find it such a joy to play. It encourages the kind of light role-playing that I love in later card games, but at the same time, it has at its core a fascinating set of manipulating information. I phrased it in terms of power the last time I talked about it, about how the only way to get anywhere, your key action was to make yourself vulnerable, was to reveal information about yourself and voluntarily disclose information to your potential opponents in the hell, in the hope of getting somewhere, of maybe encouraging them to share something about themselves of maybe them thinking that you were the person that they should end up with or anyway fascinating power dynamics as revealed through the management of information now there was a bit it was a bit of a drag in this case for sidewinder playing with sidewinder it was a position where she wanted to end up with a mate that had a particular combination of traits but the traits that she wanted dominant were really not present in the game to a large extent. There are three icons that are available and everybody has some combination of traits of those three icons. And for a long time, she was not able to find any information. Like people were sharing information with her a lot. Maybe she should have just been more outspoken about what she was looking for. I guess right around round two or three, she should have just sort of dropped the veil and be like, all right, everybody, cards on the table. No pun intended. If anybody's got this, please show it to me. This is what I'm looking for. But even then, the the trick was, based on the random flop of cards, it wasn't just, there just wasn't a whole lot there. Now, as a consequence, the overall dynamic of the game remained fascinating from my perspective, because what happened was, Sidewinder and I spent much of the early game courting each other, and then it became clear that I didn't really have what she wanted, and but maybe I was the closest thing, so she was willing to settle for me, but at the same time, she wasn't really certain, and during that moment of uncertainty, I went and I married somebody else. So... <laughs> Scandalo! It, it, was, it was scandalous, but no, it was, it was very, like, narratively, it was very fulfilling, because here we were tentatively trying to reveal information about each other, meanwhile, there's this other person being like, hey, hey, Mark, 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 I'm over here. Hey, Mark, Mark. And so I'm like, sorry, Sidewinder. Ah, uh, I'm going to have to leave you at the altar. Bye. <laughs> and so this was, uh, honestly, uh, Persuasion is one of my favorite lightweight games of the past few years. Now, this is a pre-production copy that was given to us by the designer. 
but it is available at its Itch.io page, which I've linked to in past episodes. And I heartily encourage you to give it a try if you're at all inclined towards print and plays. It's a lot of cards. But if you like persuasion, if you like these dynamics, if you like relatively light card games, nonetheless have rich narrative and information management elements involved, I can't recommend it highly enough. Now, the one element of usability concern and we've encountered this a number of times, is it rests a lot on face-down cards. Over the course of the game, you'll have stamps inserted into sleeves that indicate which cards you're allowed to look at. So as a consequence, when it's your turn uh, turn to take an action, it may be influenced by, number one, the information present on a whole bunch of face-down cards, and number two, actions present on face-down cards. So it's not uncommon for someone to say, okay, it's your turn. It's like, all right. And then they reach over to look at three different face-down cards because the moment the number of face-down cards you can look at exceeds two, you're going to forget all of them immediately. (laughs) It's just the nature of things. I have yet to encounter anyone with a memory good enough to be able to retain that kind of information. Now, if everyone's doing it constantly, if you're constantly reaching over to remind yourself about what this card looks like, it doesn't lead to a whole bunch of downtime, but some people don't like that element of cognitive load, and it kind of, it could overwhelm some people with the sense of mystery. Because again, this is about information management. You start off largely ignorant of the world, and gradually you get a better sense of things, and so you start taking risks. But if you can't internalize any of that information management, then things might be a little too daunting. But all of that having been said, uh, Persuasion as a small box is going to be living in my board, uh, board game bag for quite some time. At the very worst case, it often inspires lively conversations about the best and worst Jane Austen adaptations. Uh, The latest Persuasion on Netflix was uh, (coughs) real bad, real bad. But Persuasion by Zoe Allred, as of yet unpublished. I recommend you you go check out its itch.io page if you're at all curious. Wonderful, fascinating game. You and I got to play a game called Starship Captains. This is a review copy provided to us by Line Rampant Games. It's designed by Peter B. Hofgard and published by Czech Games Edition. So when I read the rules, I said, you know, this looks like this is the core part of the game. And sure enough, it turned out to be that you have a pool of workers and sort of a holding cell of workers. <laughs> as, as Wolf! You, so maybe a green a green room of workers. There you go. <laughs> and then as you as you take actions with your pool of workers, they slide into the queue. So I don't know if I saw it so much in our game, like taking did you ever take specific actions so those workers would be in a specific order? Never. In that queue? No. I was hoping that that would take place, but there there was some team building going on. You're going to get cadets and you can train them to do the different colors because there's all sorts of different colors of starship captains and they can go only, only go on like colored actions. There are gray actions that anyone can go on, but blah, blah, blah. Well, they're better served when going on light colored it's actions. It's true. And so I wish the queue did a little bit more, but there you go. Well, the queue allowed for, let me stress that this is my absolute favorite part of starship captains. And I think that will, I think, give you an impression about how much I enjoy the game overall. There are these androids that are one-use wild workers, and indeed, some actions specifically call for androids. The base of these androids is lar- sufficiently large that they physically will not fit into the double-layer board where the worker queue is. And that is a lovely little reminder and a cool physical gimmick to prevent you from them entering the worker queue. That is my favorite part of, of Starship Captains. When I was complaining about how most games now, as a sort of lazy, generic, or boring way, can have order fulfillment, part of me was thinking about Starship Captains. This is a game of order fulfillment. You move your starship to a planet. When you're at that planet, 
you reserve that order so nobody else can take it just to prevent there being any possibility of player interaction. You know, it looks as though they've taken every turn. It's like, oh, this could be some cool player interaction. No, we've made a rule that the first player person there puts their ship on the card to make sure everyone knows that only they can take that action. And you can largely fulfill any order with two or three workers, but you get special benefits if you fulfill them with the right kind of workers. Sometimes they're more restrictive. And that'll give you some number of points and some number of benefits. Wash, rinse, repeat. Move, fulfill order. Move, fulfill order. Move, fulfill order. You can do other things. You can kill pirates, which is a boring transactional relationship. You can manage your staff so that they are better able to fulfill the orders. And that part was okay, but you're just moving around and you're getting There's new actions you can buy. There's a bunch of damage on your ship to start with that you can heal up so you can put more actions out. And then you can, nope, stop, too late, the game's over. (laughs) Yeah, so I was intrigued when you were explaining how there are various rooms on the ship. And I immediately started getting glimpses of... You know, maybe maybe bits of Dungeon Lords or, or Space Alert or something where they're uh, man, uh, of, of managing my crew and sending the various parts of the ship and ma- and staffing various stations. It kind of, it's just, you just have this strip where you can put additional action spaces or bennies. But as you say, the game is so short, not necessarily in time duration, but just in terms of, 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 of a quick series of rounds. I understand why now the strip is so short and it starts out filled with damage because you're going to be only putting out a small number of them over the course of the game anyway. And so they don't have a huge effect on what's going on. Another sin that Starship Captains indulges in that's a personal pet peeve of mine is I don't like it when the when many Euro games enter the stage where you're no longer thinking of set aside even thematically appropriate actions, but you're setting aside the bigger actions and you're immediately like, okay, at the end of the game, this resource is worth half a point and this resource is worth a point. So this is a point and a half. So if I do this action, I'm turning one and a half points into two points. The moment you start engaging in that math involving the end game value of resources, I find that stage to be the least interesting part of every game. And Starship Captains, because there are so few rounds and because everything is worth points at the end of the game, you hit that real hard relatively quickly. And so I'm looking at that special action that I purchased, that room that I bought that was so cool. It's like, oh, yeah, it gets, it lets me do this thing, but it consumes a point and a half worth of endgame goods to do it, so I guess I'm better off doing something else. And that is just so unthematic and unsatisfying, and, and it makes me feel like an accountant in the worst possible way. I found Starship Captains beginning to end, all told, very boring. It looks pretty. It's very pretty. Your player board is this giant ship and it slides the workers around and you can store stuff on it. And then the board is, you know, it's not terrible, but all in all, it looks very pretty. The board serves to hold the cards. The cards are great too. The cards have these lovely little vignettes of... You know, it's it's Star Trek. It's Star Trek with the serial numbers filed off. Of Star Trek kind of scenes, some of them are vaguely comical, some of them are, are more straight-faced, and the artwork's really done. It would have taken so little for me to be taken away with the quality of the components and the scene and and loving all the science fiction stories about which this is clearly riffing, uh, but the gameplay just left me completely unengaged from start to finish, and I found the end especially calculational and painful. I try to defend it by saying it would be a you know, great sort of family game. You know, the rules are pretty straightforward and, and what you do, but then there's so many other better family weight games. Why give someone's first experience this? Yes. And that was Starship Captains by Czech Games Edition. Got to play a game of Cockroach Poker by Jacques Zeme. I love Cockroach Poker so much. This is, 
I also played Cockroach Poker. You did? Well, it's a great game for the holidays. It is. It? I've got a bunch of holiday games. Yeah, yeah. I, I played at the uh, public game night, actually. This was not with... I did zero gaming with uh, family members over the course of the holidays because I am not related to gamers. And the... Uh, well, that's not true. My mother plays Solitaire on her phone. And that's fine. That makes her a gamer. But she's not a board gamer. And the we introduced the game. There were a couple of new players. We said, this is a game about bullying. And they nodded and they said they understood. And then about round three, they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> this is so, you know. You guys are terrible. Exactly. It's like, they've got two frogs. Get them. <laughs> so we were up to the races. It was a glorious finish because it was, the way Cockroach Poker works is you have these early rounds and you start to wonder, how is this going to end? Not that it seems like it's too long, but the, the the finish line seems conceptually really far off. And then someone gets their second of a given piece of vermin. And suddenly everything seems perilously too close. Because two is dangerously close to three. And at three, you've almost already lost. So we had the situation where three separate players had two of a given animal. Then someone got a third and we're like, all right. Sharpen the knives, everyone. Blood's in the water. But then, instead, and uh, this is actually Sidewinder, I felt bad because Sidewinder, for what it's worth, was the sole person who lost that game of Persuasion. In Persuasion, any number of people can win and any number of people can lose. She was the only one who didn't end up happy. Uh, in Well, I mean, figuratively in the narrative, Sidewinder seemed okay with the game, but she didn't end up happy in the course of the game. And I felt bad, but whatever. I mean, she's got three flies. Someone's got to lose. Might as well be not me. But my neighbor then proceeded to hand me two bats in a row when he was already sitting on two bats. Of course I'm going to call his bluff both times, and he lost in five seconds. It was great. <laughs> I love Cockroach Poker. Mine was almost as enjoyable, except for I just, you know... I had to overthink some things. It was the look in the face. When, <laughs> when, when, when you have... Someone, someone crawled inside your head, didn't someone, they? Some, no, it was the opposite. When okay. someone doesn't play a lot of games yeah. like this with bullying and or bluffing or yep. lying, and and they do nothing but believe everything you say. Oh, right? no. And, and, and you've never tried to mislead them or manipulate them ever in, Walker. in all the times that you've lived with them. Walker. And they suddenly see this. What did you do to your they, mother? They suddenly see this. What did you do to your dear? It wasn't my mother. Okay. It, was, it was my dear wife. And and, <laughs> and, and, and she looked into my eyes oh, no. like she didn't recognize me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> It was awful. And I, I hope. Th- oh man! It made me think of it. Imagine playing this with your children. <laughs> you know where they where they. You've, I see people you've play this with their children all the time. Nothing, children are born liars. They are, but I mean, like if an, if it's a totally innocent child, where they do nothing but believe you, you're their father. And can you imagine the first thing you lie <laughs> to this child? The look of pain and hurt that would be in their eyes. It would be awful. Let me let me tell you about. A related scenario that happened during a game, a particularly heated game of the Resistance. For a while, back when I lived in Boston, we had a regular game group and we would play the Resistance all the time. We would play the Resistance like the first game of every night was the Resistance, and we we that was when I really really fell in love with the game, where you'd see so many different logic patterns emerging. Really came to appreciate it. I remember one particular point where I had been doing a pretty bad job as the spy. Now, when you do a bad job as the spy, my my typical recourse is to play dumb. It's like, oh, I I, I did that thing because I miscalculated or I didn't, you know, I, I'm parsed it or here was the ludicrous scenario that I thought was the truth. And somebody looked over at me and said, Mark, I'm going to believe you. 
But let me tell you, if you're lying to me, I don't know if our friendship can... And then he didn't finish the sentence. I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> now, it, it turned out okay. <laughs> uh, you know, bygones within five hot minutes. But uh, sometimes it gets a lot. A lot of stakes there. <laughs> I did, I, I've never seen... I personally have never seen Cockroach Poker get heated before. That's a new one for me. Well, no, I, there wasn't any anger. It was just the look of disbelief in her eyes. <laughs> oh, wow. There was, no, there was no anger. There was just... It was just... Just hurt? Just hurt. <laughs> oh, wow. I know, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't make it better. No, it makes it much worse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> goodness. So as for other party games, I'm just going to open them briefly. Sure. Because we've, we've talked about many of them before. I'm not going to go in depth. Minera is my wife's favorite, so we played that a bunch. Uh, I played your your penguin solo. You can see on Facebook. Just as I'm typing along, I would just reach over, like not not using any of the rules, but just you know, seeing how high I could stack. That was I saw that picture. It that was, was very cute. Fun. Yeah. Uh, and green team wins. That's when I oh paint the roses. Also played. Always a favorite. Seems to be going more to the paperwork now. Seems to be the game is changing from remembering where everyone placed and sort of figuring it all in your head to using the paper and and manipulating the tiles more to make the guesses more accurate. But anyway, green team wins. There are a lot of games that do what this game does better. But if you don't have a party game like this, it is fine. So what you're doing, you have this big whiteboard and there's three different kinds of questions. It's like word blank or blank word. And everyone fills out, you know, how to finish that two word sentence or there's a multiple choice question where it has three different answers and you pick one of those or there's one called this or that two fifty percent this or that everyone writes down their answer none of these are trivia questions they're all about association or preference it's it's all so there's two ways you can play it you can either just uh answer what you think or sort of feel the room to see what everyone else is going to guess because that is the the crux of the game. Yeah, it's a coordination game, yeah. You're you're trying to be in the majority of what everyone else is doing because once you you get into the majority then you're on the green team. And green always wins. And green always wins, which that manifests in multiple ways whereas if there's a tie or you know there's no actual answer for whatever reason, green team wins. Okay. They all get 2 points. Everyone who is on the green team, because you have this little card, either either on the orange team or on the green team. If you're on the green team and you and you get the right answer, you get two points. If you're on the orange team and you get the right answer, you you turn to the green team, but you only get one point. Can green team instruct members of the orange team to do menial and or embarrassing tasks? It says so in the back of the book, written in crayon. <laughs> green crayon, one assumes. Yeah, so it was perfectly fine. It 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 seemed awfully uh, sort of. It brought up a layer of trivialness, right? It was just sort of like, oh, okay, I'm just trying to get majority. Right. There's like, whereas fun facts, you get to learn things about people, and and you know, there's a little bit of you know figuring out well, how much, you know, how how well, how much does this guy like Disney? You know, so, <laughs> so there's like some. Yeah, you know, this is just like okay, well, that's the right. thing. You can't just spot them, right? They Disney fans and the hardcore Disney freaks, no judgment. They look like everyone else. You can't spot them out of a lineup. It's true. Well, unless they're wearing the ears. The ears are usually a dead giveaway. If they're wearing the ears, you can probably tell. But it's interesting that you compare it with fun facts, because to my mind, green team wins and fun facts are asking two radically different kinds of questions. Because fun facts, there are right and wrong answers. Namely, 
it's whatever you happen to believe. And that's the right answer because it's asking you to be sincere. Green Team Wins is not asking you to be sincere. Green Team Wins is asking you, it's actually closer to wavelength in that you're trying to guess what is in other people's heads, but you're trying to do so in more of a mob mentality rather than the, the specific psychic clue giver, which is a very particular skill. There's lots of interesting psychology and cognitive science papers about coordination games. A lot of people who find them deeply mystifying. Uh, it's one of the things, I'm not saying that everyone on this on the, the autism spectrum has difficulty with coordination games, but it is one of the things that people on the spectrum sometimes have difficulty with because sometimes it seems arbitrary because quite frankly, often it is, especially if the questions are going to be of that nature. True, so, you, but you could, you could play that way. You could game it out and try to guess everyone else, but you could also, also play. It's obvious. Like if you're going to, if the question is peanut butter or jelly, you're obviously going to write peanut butter because whoever writes jelly is a monster, right? So that's just how that game works. You know, I, I got to tell you, I'm in a very difficult position, Walker, because I simultaneously agree with you and have no idea why. <laughs> so that's something I need to look inside myself and determine. Those are the I, types of questions. So, you, so, <laughs> so I guess I can give it that. It does ask interesting questions where you're almost obligated to write what you feel as opposed to what you think everyone else is going to write. But the, it can be interesting to gamify false consciousness. In other words, it can be interesting to set people up in a situation where it's like, I have strong feelings about this, but I happen to know or guess that the rest of the group is going to think this way. I find it most fascinating. It's almost like... This is a bit of a reach. It's almost like those situations where you sell your soul and get nothing out of it, right? It's like, well, I don't like Linkin Park, but clearly everyone at the table does. So, and then you find out that nobody does. That's right. <laughs> and then everyone points at you, Linkin Park, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, just just to pick a random. I know. I don't even. I, I actually. I, don't even like a park uh, well, I learned some interesting things about new metal the other day. Structurally, new metal is more interesting than I gave it credit for. It's actually one of the one of the few genres of music derived from rock that has nothing to do with blues. So that's, a, that's something interesting. Structurally, it's it's more interesting than I thought it was. Anyway, setting all that aside, I would be interested to try Green Team Wins precisely because I find coordination games more interesting than I do fun facts. Fun facts, I find really weird and arbitrary and speculative and I find a lot of the questions really bad so I'd be I'd be interested to try Green Team Wins at some point for those reasons how many times have you played was Fun Facts the only the one time you played or I played it twice oh yeah I played it twice so you have played it in a group of people that you know and in yes strangers okay well, relative strangers I mean fellow fellow pod boys yes for sure but I mean pod boys for life pod boys pod boys pod boys played another game of Arcana Rising Arcana Rising by Tim Armstrong and Gray Fox Games Arcana Rising is very much a sort of stripped-down tableau builder that seeks to do drafting and tableau building in, in a very, very, very condensed format. It's fine. It's okay. I'll happily play it if it's put in front of my face. A number of people were praising it at the table because of how it accommodates hate drafting. I don't know that that's accurate. Because the way Arcana Rising works is you get your hand of cards, you're either going to play one of them into your tableau, or you're going to burn one from your hand and run your some aspect of your tableau. Changes every round what you'll be running. In my experience, though, there was never any tension between that fundamental choice, buy a card or run the tableau. I always already knew whether or not I wanted to run the tableau because I was the one building it in the first place. So either it was going to be running some good part of my tableau or it wasn't. And you have no benefit, really, in over-generalizing and making every aspect of your tableau good. That way, I think, lies madness. It would take you too long to, to, to set up the tableau. So are you going to be running a good part of your tableau or not? If not... Well, then, pick the best card there. If you are, well, then, then you pick the card that your opponent probably most wants. 
That is hate drafting, but the decision to hate draft is handed to you. The tension that I love, and again, I keep looking for other drafting games to do it half so well as Fairy Tale, is I'm sitting at this Mitful of cards and saying, well, I really want this card, but I also really know that my opponent wants this card. Which one do I take? And that trade-off is, to me, the sort of sine qua non of awesome hate drafting. And there's almost another layer there, and it's like, I really want this card, but do they know I want this card? Yes. There's like there's like six left here. This Will is... this come back to yeah, me again? exactly. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So is it fair for me to want every drafting game to be exactly like fairy tale? No. But when people talk about the hate drafting in Arcana Rising, they're accurate, but I don't find it necessarily the product of very quality decision making. I find the decision making in Arcana Rising to be very rote, very simple, very straightforward, which is fine. It's a very light, quick game. I would rather play Res Arcana in the same broad set of very stripped down, very a uh, very accessible tableau building. And I mean to go back to Res Arcana. I, I still haven't played the second expansion, uh, Pearly Imperii, more than a couple of times. So I mean to go back to it. I should probably bring it to the next game night. So that's Arcana Rising. Finally for me, I got to play a game called R. This is by Seiji Kanai uh, of Love Letter. This was repackaged by Blue Orange Games as Brave Rats, and I'm very, very pleased to have the R version for two reasons. Number one, I don't like the rats. And number two, Brave Rats comes in a big metal tin, and the game of R is 16 cards. The version I have, I paid $2 for. It comes in a little baggie with 16 cards in it, and therefore lives in my purse along with my copy of Regicide. So wherever I go, I always have R, and I always have Regicide with me. It is a brutally simple game. You have each side has the same deck of zero to seven. You play a card face down, they're revealed. High card wins, but every card has a special power, and that's where things go wild. It is a thoroughly excellent game of both managing special powers and trying to outguess your opponent. There's enough psychology and predictability and context so that it doesn't feel random, even for people who are usually not prone to double-think double games. So there's a lot of context and texture to what's going on. I had one particularly memorable game a few years ago with Woogie where we played a, where we played an 8-8 tie. We played the exact same card every single round. And so I don't, I can't play R with Woogie anymore. That's done. We're finished. <laughs> we, we had our epic confrontation and it was a, it was an eight way tie. So we're done with that. But I love playing R with other individuals. I think it's Seiji Kanai's best work, to be frank. If you thought Love Letter was kind of cute, but wanted more of a game, Try R. If you love Love Letter by itself, also try R. I wish this the, the more simplistic, stripped-down production were more widely available, but I'd happily play Brave Rats if it were put in front of my face. But I'm very, very glad that I have the Kanai Factory version. That's the Japanese version. Now, I guess I should also point out I'm glad that the Brave Rats version exists because it would be 100% impossible to find it in the Board Game Geek database if it were just called R. I have to search for Brave Rats each and every time. So I suppose thank you, Blue Orange, for that. Search for the designer, and then you know it'll come up that way as well. Yes, and then I have to page through twenty-three unless, versions of Love Letter. Unless it's unless it's a Reiner Knizia game, then you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, with the number of editions of Love Letter that exist, I'm not going to say they're in the same league, but there's still a lot of paging through. Anyway, that's R from Seiji Kanai. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, 
engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. There's a game being released by Jian Shim. It's called Much That Is Good and All That Is Evil. It is a solo game about the voraciousness of the Western Gull. <laughs> See, isn't that that's just, amazing? No, it's a, it sounds amazing, but apparently it's going to be very hard to get. Apparently, it's only going to be available, you know, to patrons of of hers. So I, I'm not sure. But wow! It looks amazing. It sounds amazing. I so much want to play it. Now that is a singular vision. Now we've played uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood a couple of times. Mark hasn't tried it yet, but we've played it on stream a couple of times, and we had the the right players, and it was. Very enjoyable. And they're going to be putting out an expansion, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Friar Tuck in Danger. Same artist, same designer, Michael Menzel, and also put out by Cosmos. Not sure if I'll give it a try. I have barely scratched the surface of, of Robin Hood. But... Friar Tuck is definitely competing hard. He's number two with a bullet in the category of Robin Hood characters getting captured and needing to be saved. The next pu pu best Robin Hood characters and we'll omit Robin Hood. No. Obviously the best. No. And then we'll we'll rank the rest of them as they go down. No. <laughs> That's a bad idea. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> first of all, you know that I'd first pick King John because I think King John has gotten a bad rap historically and I'd just go down to another 5-0 loss. It's true. So yeah. we'll just I'd we'll go, just take it as given that you win 5-0. I'd do Little John at the beginning and then it would be just winning all the way. Yeah, I mean everyone loves Little John. It's the end of the year. We are planning things. There are opportunities that are presented to us. I don't mean to be cryptic, but we're considering a number of things here at So Very Wrong About Games. And rather than speculate wildly, because let's be frank, neither of us are particularly bright, and in the context of Green Team Wins, which neither of us would probably do very well, coordination games aren't really good for us, especially amongst all the untold masses of swag listeners. So we, all of this is to say we have an end-of-year survey up. Uh, the link has been promulgated on Twitter and Facebook. Additionally, it is on our Patreon Discord. Finally, also, there is a link in the episode description. So we would very much appreciate it. It's a very, very short survey. Uh, we would very much appreciate it if you would take the time to fill out. Most of them are multiple choice. 
It is very simple. Just do a couple of the clickety clickities and you'll be done. And we would appreciate your participation a great deal. And you can help influence the future of swag. So please, please participate in the end of year swag survey. You can also be entered in for glorious prizes. Next up is Noobs in Space. So much like Starship Captains, <laughs> which we sort of like said, well, why don't we just play Space Alert? This looks like it's the same sort of thing. It looks like crazy things <laughs> happening in space. Everyone has everyone has like a small piece of the puzzle and no one else knows what, what the other people are trying to do. So you're trying to like parse out what they're doing and do your own thing. So that seems interesting. This is also being put out by Cosmos, and uh, I'm probably going to give it a try. It looks very interesting. That does sound cool. I'd give, I'd give that a try, too. Yeah. And that is the news this week and why it does not matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is real-time games. Allow me to quote my great friend Woogie that I've already referred to in the context of this episode. This is a quote I've mentioned several times before. Misplays are interesting. Play faster. Let's start off like I normally do, Mark. Because you'd think you'd be used to it now. Oh, but you I think ha- I'd know what I, I was going some, to ask. I have some pointed questions for you, too, though. What is a real-time game? <laughs> okay. Are there any corner cases that you find well, confusing? I do. I, do. I, I think there are two two or maybe three categories. Like, okay. Would you call Loop and Louie a real-time game? Well, that actually was one of the pointed questions that I wanted to ask for yeah. you. Because I would, I would say uh, Loop and Louie is absolutely a real-time game. And the question that I have deeper than that, though, is in some way, are all dexterity games real-time games? Because let me tell you, when I'm playing a game, any real-time, any dexterity game, whether it's Crash Octopus, whether it's the only game that matters, Seal Team Flicks, when I'm lining up for a shot, I have a sense of temporality, of no going back, in a way that I don't feel in any other game. Even if I know and I'm sitting around a table of people where no take-backs are allowed, you know, a whole bunch of either very unpersonable people or, or sweaty tryhards is like, no, 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 play it as it lies, whatever. I know that I can just sit there and think and decide what to do. But when I'm flicking, I just have that moment of time where my finger is moving. Does that make sense to you? It does. No, that, I, that I was, feel that was, time that pressure. Definitely in, my last thing yeah. was flicking games was yeah. to put a final stamp of no at the end or a final stamp of yes. I think really for me re- that what should fall under the category of real time is you are taking actions on under a time limit of some kind. And during that time limit situation and gameplay changes. That's fair. While you're in that time, you have to sometimes, you know, change up your strategy. I think that's an excellent working definition, but I just wanted to stress the interesting sense of temporality one gets when flicking, even if you have all the time in the world to line it up. So yeah, by that definition, Loop and Louie is still a real-time game, but Seal Team Flicks and Crash Octopus are not. Because in Loop and Louie, the game state can always be changing by virtue of other people's actions, and that can change the trajectory of the great Lupin one, who may come and descend and steal then chickens. It's a very complicated religious experience for me playing Loop and Louie. I can't believe I don't play it more often. So I'm just going to go over it, like, in that that category thing, I do have some games. Because I know at the end of this, you know, after we talk about some very brief things, we're probably just going to go over a a grand list of games. So I have Boggle, right? It's just a timed thing. Pit, timed, I don't think. Same thing with Meeple Circus. It's it's talked about the same thing we were talking about. Oh, that's true. It's dexterity, timed. But the game state doesn't change during that timed segment. Well, of course it does, though. Well, okay, not Boggle, right? No. But Meeple Circus, absolutely. The time pressure encourages you to make mistakes, and if your little building topples, 
Well, that's a change in the game state, absolutely. It is. And I suppose, I, I guess you're right, you could totally change what you're going for. You could say, well, that is too hard. I will, yep. I will change it up in a way. But the game doesn't change it. You change it. Uh, well. I'm, I'm saying that's not a huge thing, but it is a thing. Well, the, the game, well, yeah, you're right. It's not caused by opponents, but it's it's just caused by physics in your own mistakes. But I, I think that that particular thing is a distinction without a difference. Boggle, though, at that point, we're talking a little bit more like puzzles. So another real-time game that's similar to Boggle but different is Set. Have you ever played Set? Probably, but I do not remember. You, you, you deal out a set of cards. Sorry, not a set, set of cards. You, you, you deal a set of cards You set? deal out cards, and it's a real-time pattern recognition game where you look at the grid of cards and say, oh, this diagonal all shares this feature, and then you scoop up those cards and deal replacements, right? That that makes it kind of put it in the same category as what I, I, I remember reading this description because for a while I knew it was a genre, but I didn't know what to call it, of slap games which is the real-time games where you have to go grab a card or, or something based usually on pattern recognition. So that's Jungle Speed, which I don't really like. That's Ghost Blitz, which I do prefer, uh, where you have to go and grab or slap something in real time based on recognition of a pattern. And then what started this for me was was Galaxy Trucker, because it's just one part of its time, and the rest you sort of like play out. But the fact is, that sort of leads back into what I said before, that it does sort of change the game state because you can look at the cards coming up and then change how you are building your ship. You can look at the cards. You can look at what other people are taking. You can even look at what other people are building. More than once, I've been in a position where I'm desperately looking for a particular kind of component. I glance over at another player's ship. I see that they're utterly festooned with that kind of component. I shrug and say, oh, well, not getting it this round. Might as well give up. I have a pointed question for you before we proceed, though. Is Galaxy Trucker the best real-time game ever? No. Okay. I think it might well be. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure, but I think that I think I might think that there's a, a, a sort of a three-way tie, but go on. And then there's just another game that has a timed element, so I'm not sure if it's is is uh real time, but it's Sad Dreadful Condrant. Oh, sorry, Sidereal Confluence. It has that time sort of trading <sighs> mechanism. So is it is it a real-time game? Or? Absolutely. And indeed, this this was my second uh, sort of probing question are almost all negotiation games real-time games, whether they say so or not. Because your chief complaint, you phrase it as bullying, which is grotesquely unfair, but there is almost always a first-mover advantage in the context of deal-making. Now, some games, there isn't because you engage in more haggling. So, for example, in, in Traders of Genua, for example, which is a great Rudiger Dorn game, albeit a little bit overlong, the first offer is probably not going to take it because you have a limited number of offers you can take, and so that encourages you to haggle and try to uh, nickel and dime people. But a lot of negotiation games, a lot of even social deduction games, there's a first mover advantage, and so they end up feeling an awful lot like real-time games, even if mechanically they're not. That is also a thought I had, is either trading games or, like you said, negotiation games so like so that means like you could even say that Catan is a real-time game so again in I'm, a way i'm less in, yes exactly i'm less interested in sort of like does it belong on a category no, no, i'm not saying that yet, either yeah does right. it have elements of real time i think it does yeah and i think that Catan is an example of where there is a first mover advantage again and where the where the trading is so coarse like if you know one wheat for ore makes perfect sense but two wheat for ore doesn't whoever offers the one wheat first is probably going to take it and so, yeah, there is an element of real-time gaming in, in a lot of, if not all, trading and negotiation games, whether they exist in the Elysian Quadrant or not. How dare you slur that game? Jeez. 
All right, so I have some just random... If Galaxy Trucker isn't the greatest real-time game ever, I think Citadel Confluence uh, might be. Sure, you can have your opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll get to this so later. I, I have some random... I want you to answer the question, though, later. You don't have to now, but I, I want you later. I have some just random statements now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm looking forward to arbitrary statements. So the, it's, it's the best way to solve alpha gaming or quarterbacking in co-ops. 100%. The part where it gets really frustrating, and I appreciate when people know this about themselves, but the people who... Uh, either a are paralyzed by analysis paralysis or engage of lots in lots of alpha gaming or quarterbacking. Some of those people are like, I know this about myself to the extent that I refuse to play a real time games. Cause that's usually one of the first recourses, right? It's like, Oh, there's this person in my group who's has terrible AP. What do I do? People suggest put a timer on or play real time games. And often the answer is no, they refuse to play games that way. It's like, when it does work, it's great. Helps you focus on a goal. Does it? Sometimes. As long as, like I said, if the game state doesn't change so much. When we were playing Time of Empires, Mm -hmm. while we're doing, like, where are you doing sort of the prep work before the round begins, you can just sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to focus on this particular thing. And you can sort of, you know, manipulate it and get... And, and get those buildings built and you can see like an end game situation or a leader card that's going to score off of a certain type of building and you can say, okay, I'm going to manipulate the components and just focus on that one thing. So I think what you're saying is the way I would put it is it forces you to adopt the kind of heuristics that I often talk about. It, again, I, I don't know why Citadel Confluence keeps coming up, but it, it to me is the classic example. You can't run your entire economy in Citadel Confluence, so you have to focus on which cards you want to run. And that is a great way to try to pare down your tableau from a billion and one cards to merely 750 million cards. And also all your negotiation and trading in that game, right? Because you know right. you know what components you need. You don't have to you know try to get a bunch of everything right. and, and just make the best deals. You just need to get what you need. To me, that that's less of a characteristic of real-time games necessarily, because I think almost all resource manipulation games, or indeed games generally, force you, or at least encourage you to play well on focusing on some kind of short-to-long-term goals, engaging heuristics, kind of separating out the, the signal from the noise. It's just in real-time games, you have to. That's what I'm saying. Well, I always have the same thing with Great Western Trail. Have a great plan off the game. It's going to be great. And then it never happens. It happens yeah. That happens to me in almost every... I get distracted. It's like, oh, I didn't realize you can do that, and I'm off somewhere else. Right. Whereas if it's real-time, it's like, you know, you're you're bullet focused on this one goal well that that, but that's one of the things that i love about real-time games you can play them that way but the time pressure adds additional context to feeling pulled in multiple directions because there's lots of different things you want to do and talking about a game that does that very well time of empires you want to be able to put out that great card but in order to do that you need the ideas first well maybe you should build the building that would get you more ideas first no 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 set that aside but i'll just set out the population now it's like wait and so suddenly you're dealing with a whole bunch of nested conditionals and and normally in if this were a turn based game you could have someone trying to plot out openings or doing the side thing it's like here's how you get the factory in 15 turns but because it's real time and because other people are also playing in real time it just encourages you to play a little bit more intuitively and that's the mode of play that i enjoy doing anyway being the filthy casual that i am and that's one of the reasons why i love real time games so much that just to compare it to another game uh, and this this is a one we don't agree with. In fact, I'm kind of out of step with most people. Pendulum. Pendulum, the stone mirror. I thought Pendulum was pretty good, I, uh, pretty enjoyable, because what it is is a bog-standard, utterly pedestrian, completely unoriginal resource conversion worker placement game rendered real-time. 
And so it was that one element that completely made the game for me. I wouldn't play Pendulum if it were turn-based, not in a million years. It would be, you know, even more generic than Starship Captains uh, with even less personality. But because it's a real-time game, I feel those pressures internalized in an engaging way, so I don't feel like I'm an accountant. I feel instead like I've got this tension, this enjoyable tension I need to navigate. I have a great way to create tension. Exactly. And lastly, it's uh, good filler because you know exactly how long they're going to take. <laughs> it's true. Some of them. Yes. Yes. Some of them. It, it can get a little dicey. Uh, Space Alert, I think, is the traditional example of the one where, well, you know that the game itself is going to take 10 minutes, but mm, it could take anywhere from one minute to probably in excess of a half an hour to actually resolve the actual game, depending on how long it lasts before you completely blow up. And so ends my random statements of real-time <laughs> games. Okay, so I've asked you most of my pointed questions about dexterity games, about negotiation games, uh, about social deduction games. When thinking about the very best real-time games, I think of Galaxy Trucker, I think of setting aside Loop and Louie, because if Loop and Louie were included, Loop and Louie would probably be my favorite real-time game, no question about it, but... So I think of my favorite real-time games, I think of Galaxy Trucker, I think of Serial Confluence, possibly Space Alert. The, 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 the reason why Space Alert is only a possibly, though, is precisely because it feels like an enjoyable game followed by less of an enjoyable element. I don't like, it doesn't feel just like bookkeeping because you see the emergence of the terrible decisions you made, but you don't make any choices. Galaxy Trucker, to me, is the superior real-time game because the real-time element is then followed by turn-based actual decision-making, which is in, which has been indelibly colored by the decisions you made during the real-time element. Now, the decisions you make when you're actually going through the deck in Galaxy Trucker are not, I think, as meaningful as the decisions you've made in terms of building your ship, especially if you look at the cards that are coming up. But it's not nothing. You do, you're juggling resources and trading off battery life versus time and all, the, all these other things. So you you dismissed my statement that Galaxy Trucker is is the best or possibly the best real time game. What is your favorite real time game, Walker? I'm I'm first of all ashamed that in your top few that you did not mention for science. I'm also slightly ashamed that you did not mention Vengeance Roll and Write. The, the, excellent, excellent games. But uh, now, so for my favorite real time, I really enjoy every time I play it. Always want to play it is Project Elite. Yeah, that I, should, I probably should have seen that coming. Look, I didn't include For Science because I've uh, been getting a little bit of flack, I think justifiably, for being a shill for my personal friend. Uh, so I'm trying to, I'm sincerely now trying to bracket gotcha. uh, my discussion of uh, the, the work of Eric Royce because it's absolutely fabulous, but try not to, try not to, to, to push that too much. And as far as uh, Vengeance Roll and Fight goes, it is an extremely satisfying uh, shorter game, and I do like the the real-time pressure, but I don't think it quite reaches the level of Galaxy Trucker or Citadel Confluence. But saying something isn't as good as Galaxy Trucker or Citadel Confluence, that is not a criticism. <laughs> I like the Rush series as well, Kitchen Rush and Rush MD. I both enjoy both of those. Yeah, I should really try Rush MD because, or Kitchen Rush even, because as I said, I like, I've yet to play a real-time game that I strongly disliked. Or was thoroughly unengaged by, so... Well, there has been a new expansion that we've got in our circle for Rush MD, so maybe we should pull that out soon. Oh, yeah? I really did enjoy XCOM. Yeah, I never tried that either. 
Because my, my, my prejudice against app-driven games is, is very deep. I've always been heavy into all the XCOM computer, computer games. I think I'd probably have to say more than any other game. Sure. When when you put in the hours. I actually know Civ probably destroys all of those. Never mind. Um, League of Legends, I would imagine. League of Legends, true. Yeah, but I, that's totally separate. <laughs> that's a count. That's a lifestyle. <laughs> um, okay. So, yes, XCOM has all sorts of interesting things, different jobs for all the different players, and, you know, mixing up different timers going on at all sorts of different times. And that, like you said, is very, very uh, heavily app driven. It doesn't even come with a rule book, at least yeah. not in the version I got. It all depends on what was on the app. Yeah, there are a number of red strikes uh, uh, strikes for me against XCOM. One of them is, you know, it doesn't come with a rule book, heavily app-driven. The other thing is, the best part of XCOM isn't in the game. You don't do the tactical combat, so... Well, no, that, that's for you, right? You have to... Really? You have to re- no, it is for me as well. Okay. 100%. Who's the person who's but like, some, the best some, part of XCOM is people, the base management? Well, when you when you type in XCOM, there's tons of... of I love the base management there's, there's, of XCOM, there's, there's, but... never, there's never any strategies on how to kill the aliens, but man, <laughs> you want to read like hundreds of pages on the best way to build your base? Well, they are there. Fine. I don't think that necessarily relates to people's preferences in terms... Okay, anyway. Suffice to say, it is a major part of the game that is not represented in, in the XCOM board game. I mean, yeah, you roll some dice, but if somebody could combine Project Elite and XCOM, that would be a very difficult thing to do. Because here, here's one of the things that we haven't yet discussed, and I'd, I'd like to discuss some of the some of the ways the different games get around it, is the challenges in designing a real-time board game. You get a lot of advantages, right? Instant tension, uh, guaranteed short play time, constant engagement, no downtime, etc., etc., etc. But you have to make sure that the rules are of a, a, a sufficient depth that people are not going to be asking questions in the middle of the game. You've got to make sure that people are able to teach the game in its entirety at the front, all at the outset, and that everyone can then hit the ground running. Now, obviously there are exceptions. You can pause and explain things, and and, and fortunately in the app for Time of Empires there's a handy pause button, and sometimes when someone hands me a card and says, what does this do? I can just hit the pause button and, and do that. But <clears throat> in the context of, say, Project Elite, which I think is Project Elite and, and Galaxy Trucker both, I think, are kind of pushing the li- the limits of how far you can go because just the volume of stuff, ship components or weapons or special True, abilities. but the, what the advantage of Project Elite has over Galaxy Trucker in, that, in this state, in my mind, is the fact that it's a cooperative game. That's true. And you're on the same board, so you can sort of see what the other person is doing. That's and true. Can, and you can sort of tell them that you know, you're moving wrong or that's true. you need to roll this certain dice. I'm not saying it's the best way, but I'm saying that is a difference. No, you're right. You're right. That is absolutely true. But I was just, I was just, what I was musing, I realized in the process of my musing, I was about to answer my own question. Wouldn't it be great if we could have a real-time game that had the management elements of XCOM plus the tactical decision-making of something like uh, 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 Project Elite, but that would be too much, I think. It would be, in terms of, of, of rules upkeep, because not a real-time game, but, uh, well, the original one, Space Cadets, not a real-time game, but I think that demonstrates the pitfalls of having a series of simple things that can add up to a rules nightmare. Space Cadets, Dice, Dice Duel, though, real-time game, excellent, very tense, love it. And I, I'm actually surprised, though, that you haven't mentioned uh, an, an, another uh, real-time game that is only sometimes real-time, but best played real-time, and that is that is Space Hulk. Real-time Space Hulk. 
Yeah, you don't oh, play with the, the timer. The timer, yes. Okay. Yeah, true, true. Well, that's just it. It's a matter of some controversy. Some space health people never play with the timer. I always play with the timer where available because I think it it does a beautiful job of really internalizing the asymmetry. The space marines are super slow, so they have to play fast. The gene stealers are super fast, so they get to play slow which I find fascinating. That disjunction, I find endlessly conceptually interesting. And on top of that, I really like, again, the tension. It should be tense playing as, as the Marines, having to make hurried decisions, and suddenly your, your, your giant bright red fire hydrant is in the way of the other fire hydrant, and they can't move in their appropriate conga line. Do, do you not play real-time? No, I hardly have never played Space Hulk real-time. Really? Because we just never... never... It's never taken that long for the Space Marine player to play. We usually play it fairly quickly. So. Yeah, but even if they're not going to... I guess I know what you're saying. But well, that's least, the magic thing. Even the presence the of a timer that's changes true. the contours of what's going on. I want to touch back on the rules that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Nice basic rules, but not only that, you need to have nice basic components. You can't be manipulating little things. That's true. Over and over. Kitchen Rush does this, you know, it's a little... Brutal with that because you have like, you know, 50, not, it's not 15 different ingredients, but <laughs> it's a lot of ingredients and stuff sure. flying all over the place. Cause I want to, I do want to touch back. I really, Time of Empires have, has done really good things here. Which yes. I already talked about with the population, but what I didn't talk about was the other resources that you have because it's six maximum. Yes. So you're only manipulating, you know, six And words, every player six has stone. their own supply. Exactly. You're not reaching over the table. Everything is in front of you. There is a problem, like you said, with the cards being on the outside. The leaders and, and the wonders are the one problem. Yeah, because again, it, 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 and it knows that this is a potential problem. And you know that it knows this because the technology cards get separated out into four different piles on two different boards so you can put them at opposite ends of the table. So generally speaking, everyone has, has close access to some of them. The leaders and the wonders, on the other hand, and they have to They've got to go somewhere. And when you, when I was playing four players, it was real hard to figure out where to put them all. Not because we were running out of room, but we just wanted everyone to be proximate. I think that will wash out with multiple plays, though. I know I hate it'll, saying it'll be hel- with, with it'll be helpful, you know, sure, multiple yeah. things. But one, on your first play, you're just trying to figure out this other stuff. So you sort of just sort of ignore sure. parts of the game. And those are things that are easy to ignore just for that reason on the outside. I'd rather, though, even for a first play, that those decisions be made organically, not as a not because the thing is too far away at the table. True. But I hear you. But yeah, so once you know how the game all works, and then you can just read the cards at the beginning of the round, and you can sort of like focus, okay, that's the one I want. I don't care about the other ones. And then you can just try to bid on the ones that you want. Yeah, I agree with you that in terms of Finding these balances, knowing the, the the correct balance of rules complexity with the same range of options, while simultaneously trying to evoke a lot of very well-defined genre convention, Time of Empires gets a lot right. I would like to give a plug to two real-time games that I've had zero success introducing to people. One of them is called Hurry Cup by Antoine Boza. I've tried playing this with a couple of different groups, and so far everyone but me has hated it. It is a racing game. Where at the top of the round, and you know, like many racing games, sometimes you want to go as fast as possible. Sometimes you're about to go to a curve. Sometimes you have to worry about turning left versus turning right, etc. At the top of the round, you roll a whole bunch of colored dice, and then you have to grab the pawn that corresponds to the dice you want to claim. And so that's the real-time element of, of the racing the racing bit. And that part was super great. It had some random stuff on top, but a lot of that was optional. I loved that sort of real-time action selection mechanism. But again, people just bounced off of it hard. And another game on the topic of trying to overcome some of the difficulties of real-time games 
You may or may not remember Mech Command RTS, which began its life with the Armored Core franchise, but then dropped that in, shall we say, suspicious circumstances. And Line of Sight is a very common bugbear, and so one of the reasons why you don't see a whole lot of real-time tactical combat games is because of Line of Sight. The solution that Project Elite has is every gun fires in a straight line, and every gun has a terrible range. You don't see a whole lot of across-the-board shots in Project Elite. Mech Command, you can do cross-the-board shots because on the base of every mech is a little light. And what you do is you hit the button on the light, and if the beam strikes your target, you know you have line of sight. And so, like, red fires on blue, and then you just hand up the damage. Red fires on blue, red fires on yellow, pivot over. It's great. The only serious problem I had with Mech Command RTS was fixed player count of four, married to a campaign system. And I never really did get to a position where either A, I could get any flexibility with the player count, or B, find a good sort of, I'll, I'll use the term raid, right? It's like, just pick a scenario, have some money, customize your mech, get started right from the beginning. It was, it, it was too married to its campaign system, and as a consequence, couldn't play more of it. But I burn with regret. I think where I sort of bounce hard off of some of these games is when it's not co-op. Because it's very heads down when it's a real-time game that you're only manipulating your own board, like Vengeance Roll and Write, like Galaxy Trucker. That's like, true. Like Bullet, things like this. I, I'm just not a fan of. That's true. I mean, I don't I don't dislike it, but I agree with you. I mean, we always talk about how we prefer games with player interaction as opposed to those without. I think there is a fair amount of player interaction in Galaxy Trucker, though, in terms of the competition for scarce resources. So that that's a little more texture than just the pressure, the time pressure of Vengeance Roll and Fight. Because Vengeance Roll and Fight, the time pressure is provided by the other players. You're going to run out of dice if you don't act quickly. You don't even need a timer as a consequence. And I think you mentioning Bullet, I think, is a good one. I think in preparing for this topic, I was really reminded why I was okay with letting Bullet fall out of our collection. Because there's a lot of really good real-time games. And so, yes, I like real-time games a great deal. But at this point, we're talking, what, easily half a dozen superb real-time games that I really, really, really enjoy. So, at that point, Bullet, although still really good, didn't quite make the cut. I have very few that I have not talked about. Fuse, I really enjoy. I still have a copy of Fuse. It either is about to or already has just got a second edition or some sort of new edition. And last but not least, uh, a game that we enjoyed just very recently, the Hand-to-Hand Wombat. <laughs> That's true. So in the end, I'm looking forward to all, always like new ways to implement real-time games. And I think this new Time of Empires, I'm very much looking forward to trying it again. Yeah, the first the first real-time game I ever played was back in 2006 called Space Dealer. Didn't quite work. Even its re-implementation called Time and Space didn't quite work. But ever since then, I've been fascinated with the genre. I've, I've really, really enjoyed almost all the ones that I've played. And I'm very, very happy to try new ones. And again, finding new ways to explore the design space is really cool. And I think that's one of the reasons why Time of Empires is very much present in our mind at the current moment. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. Parenthetically, our system administrator, Warmboy, has done excellent work on sowronggames.com. So much information there. Also, it is the end of the year. Please participate in our end of year survey. If you're at all inclined, we would appreciate that a great deal. But we also appreciate your spending your time with us this week. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace!
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.